Today we're going to have the introduction to the Hungry for God series, uh, taking some passages from the Gospel of John a little bit later on, but I'd like to read something from the New York Times that was recently published uh, and about the age of decadence. And the author's name is Ross Duthat. And this is what he writes. He says, everyone knows that we live in a time of constant acceleration, a virtuous change. I mean, it's a vertical world that we live in where we seem to be twirling and whirling and being spun around, of transformation or looming disaster everywhere you look. Partisans are girding for civil war, speaking about the American political landscape. Robots are coming for our job, and the newsreels feels like a multi-car pileup every time you fire up Twitter. Our pessimists see crisis everywhere, for all those pessimists in the house this morning. And all our optimists, for those in the house also as well, insist that we're just anxious because the world is changing faster than our primitive ape brains can process. But what if the feeling, he goes on to say, of acceleration is nothing but an illusion, conjured by our expectation of perpetual progress and exaggerated by the distorting filter of the inter internet? What if we, or at least we in the developed world, world in America, Europe, and the Pacific Rim, really inhabit an era in which repetition is more than the norm that we invent? Hello? Because we hear things so many times, he's trying to say, we watch news 24-7, we watch sports 24-7, we watch entertainment 24-7, and it looks like there's a whole bunch of stuff being invented, but it's the same old, same old being said again and again. That's his point. In which stalemate rather than revolution stamps our politics, in which cirrhosis affects public institutions and private life alike, in which new developments in science and new exploratory projects consistently under-deliver. And he says, cut the drama. The real story of the West in the 21st century is one of stalemate and stagnation and not quick acceleration. I've said all that to say with the church too and what we have experienced in the last 50 years. People say it's changing, it's moving fast, there's so much going on here. But at the same rate, has our hunger from God accelerated or are just the forms in which we use to worship God accelerated? Hello? How hungry are you for the living God? How thirsty are you for the living God? North Americans and Europe and the rest of the world, live in a, we live in a world that is almost overrun by food in the physical world. It's everywhere and it's abundant. It's maybe not shared, but it is abundant. Our conception of plenty in the West is not always God's idea of plenty. In fact, God's bounty looks like leftovers for us. He gives us more than we can eat and we complain. And it looks like lack in our eyes instead of abundance in our eyes. Even though we like to quote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's the shepherd that leads us beside the still water. He's the shepherd that is also gives us more than enough. And yet we complain and we complain and we complain because our appetites are enormous. 
And some of us have super enormous appetites without mentioning any names. And we never end up satisfied. And then Jesus, the Word who became flesh, comes amongst humanity, lives his life, performs miracles, dies on a cross, rises from the dead, and he says, I am more than the enough that you need. And we still find lack in him. We still think he doesn't satisfy. So how do you respond to the question, are you hungry for God? During Lent, we're challenged to live in this liturgy of abundance. Yes, we talk about diets and we talk about fasting, but we only talk about those things so that you can move into the abundance that God has for you. Trusting the God who provides, the God who protects. And God's provision of food is all over Scripture. It begins in the garden with the fruit trees. It moves to Noah and the family and the vineyards. It goes to Abraham and his family with the herds of sheep. And even in the wilderness, there's manna and quail. And they move on to the promised land, the land of milk and honey and olives and dates and figs and pomegranates and grapes and barley. And then Jesus arrives and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I have everything that you truly need as a human being. I am for you. And Jesus even promises us, that when we see him face to face, there'll be a great banquet. And he will provide everything that we need. And the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Are you hungry for God? Maybe we need to ask, what is hunger? Well, some dictionaries will say hum hunger is discomfort. Weakness caused by prolonged lack of food is to have a strong desire or a craving for something. And the opposite of being hungry is to be full. Or maybe lukewarm, you know, when you ask somebody, are you hungry? It's not really lukewarm. They think they have enough. So our prayer for these upcoming weeks as we head towards the cross and the resurrection and beyond is that God will stir a passion within your hearts for hungering for him and his kingdom. In the Gospel of John, we read these words in chapter 6, and this cord right behind me is giving me a hard time. Anyway, so they asked him. That's the people asking Jesus, of course. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will we do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, and Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He is the God without lack. He is the God who always provides what we need. He is the God that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, you have enough for today. 
And as our neighbors south of the border, and we made it a little bit Canadian, hey, you all, are you hungry for God? Moving from the rugged individualism that has ruined the Western world into understanding our corporate identity and our hunger and thirst for the things of God. Margaret Feinberg wrote a book called Hungry for God, and one person that reviewed it asked that question, are you hungry for God? And the person wrote in the review, I love the delicious little snacks for my soul that I receive throughout the day. But only snacking is not going to provide growth. So the reviewer says that after that, he says, don't just snack on God's word. Feast on God's word. Understand what God's trying to tell you and communicate to you through the word of God. So long before there was a Rachel well, Ray, or a Michael Smith, or out of the countless other chefs that we see on TV that come through our homes via cable and the internet, God's the original foodie, because he knows what you need. He knows what you need. And he provides an endless buffet of physical and spiritual food for us to digest, so that we can be reflectors of his image in this perverse and dark world. So I ask you a very good question once again. Are you hungry for God? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst, righteousness. That means that God is going to make everything right in his time, that God is making everything right in our time, and that God has made everything right in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a justice term, a justice term that relates to eradicating evil and darkness and the powers thereof that are in our world today. Someone said one of the clear indicators that something is wrong physically is when we lose our appetite. Have you lost your appetite for God? Hello? Have you lost your appetite for God? To hunger and thirst for God is at the root of our very being. It's how we're created. It's the way that God made us when there is no hunger for the presence of God in our lives. It's an indicator that something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because hunger is so basic to human and spiritual nature, it often finds fulfillment in other areas of our lives. Rather than seeking God, we seek other things to take the place that only God can fill. How's your appetite for God? Your appetite for His Word, your appetite for prayer, your appetite for the disciplines of the church, your appetite for gathering together with other saints, not just on Sunday morning, but all through the week and through the month and through the year. Scott McKnight adds his own input to Feinberg's review. He says, I don't know anything about real hunger, and most of us can understand what he's going through because most of us don't really understand real hunger. He says, while billions suffer in starvation and poverty, I live behind the plush curtain. Yet hunger is woven into the fabric of our humanness. No matter where you live, appetite is a permanent desire that doesn't discriminate. Even humans have felt its pangs. Without an appetite, we slip into starvation and even death. For those ones that don't even know they're starving, the ones that suffer from that sickness, Hunger is the gnawing reminder that in order to have strength, we must have sustenance. 
If physical hunger is a set of feelings focused around the stomach that leads a person to search for food, then spiritual food, he says, and spiritual hunger is a set of experience or longings that compel a person to search for God. To search for God. Not only that I got saved at such and such a day so many years ago, but I'm still on that journey. I'm still seeking His face. I'm still seeking His hand upon my life. I'm still seeking the God who encountered me 35 plus years ago. Because I'm not satisfied fully yet because I'm still on this side of history and of time. Unlike physical hunger, which can be satiated by food, our spiritual appetites can only be quelled by God. Listen to what he says. Without an appetite for God, we slip into spiritual starvation. Without an appetite for God, we can come on Sunday morning, we can come on Wednesday, but we're just going through routine after routine after routine because we're more concerned about the time than about meeting God. Hello? This is Lent. It's a time to draw near to the one who has created us, has called us. Is there anyone in the house that's hungry, anxious in spirit for the presence of the living God to work in their lives and their world? Not hungry for mere Sunday services, which reflect entertainment. One person said, we don't plant churches anymore. We plant Sunday entertainment centers. Because people think as long as I came Sunday, it doesn't matter if we ever see each other until next Sunday. But that's not a church. A church is the people. The people that gather in the house of the Lord and they gather through the week together and they pray together and they love together and they have fellowship together. Not too many amens there, Lord. Some of us can't wait to fill our stomachs in an hour or so. Whether in your home or at the local restaurants. And we turn Sunday services in a time that because we haven't Eight during the week, we try to overeat in our Sunday services because we're trying to do catch-up from what we should be doing the rest of the week. Hello? Hello? I seen a documentary yesterday called The Future of the Church by a young person that's into marketing that grew up in the church. His marketing has nothing to do with Christendom per se, but he decided with a friend that wasn't a Christian that works with him to go around and see what the church is thinking and what they're doing and what they're all worried about that we're going to, you know, move out of existence. As long as we have a God that's the head of the church, we won't move out of existence, my friends. And he said in 1970, some of you can remember it, there was a great, there was a little book, not a great book because his theology was horrible, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, who had an immoral lifestyle. And yet that book sold almost as many copies as the Bible during that time. And many people believed that everything in that book was sacrosanct and truth, but it wasn't. But nonetheless, eschatology, the waiting, the longing for the return of Jesus was rarely alive in the 70s. And that's a good thing, despite the book's bad theology and bad biblical interpretation. So and the, that was the 70s, and then we moved into the 80s, and south of the border, and it, it overflowed into Canada too. We had Jerry Falwell in the moral majority because they had to stick up for things that are moral. And then every church began to do the same program about moral majority rights and what's right and what's wrong and so on. 
But then we come to the 90s, and the 90s, what the thing that was faddish in the evangelical church was to be a seeker-sensitive service. That we have to make sure that we don't offend anybody on Sunday morning or during the week or in our homes because we, we got to draw them in and we got to dumb down the gospel. And then years later, the same church that introduced us to seeker-sensitive service said we made a mistake because we grew a church that was a mile wide and just a little under an inch deep. God doesn't want us to go wide without going deep. Sunday school, we learned that song, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Plunge right in. Lose yourself. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. So, it was also the rise of the mega churches. And what do you see when you drive, especially in the States, and you see all those lines in Arizona or Florida of those big churches and enormous parking lots, and you see a lot of money wasted on asphalt that's only good for Sunday morning, hello? Is that how we use God's money? <laughs> only good for Sunday morning. It wasn't the asphalt's problem. It wasn't the dream to build a big parking lot. It was that we build a church to, for it to be used. And if it wears out, that's a good sign because it's being used for God, Amen. Amen? So then we go from eschatology to the moral majority, and then we go to the seeker-sensitive, and then we hit the 200s, and everybody wants to go on a mission trip. <laughs> everybody wants to go on a mission trip. We're missional, and missional becomes a buzzword. And people sell books, and people write articles, and, and we read them, and we try to absorb them, and so on, and so on. And as they go through this Future of the Church documentary, they say, why is this constant change of interest and focus? What happened in the early church? They had no buildings, and yet they thrived. <laughs> they had no parking lots, and yet they thrived. They had no eschatology, per se, as Hal Lindsey wrote, or moral majority, or seeker-sensitive, or missional, per se, even though all of these things are good in themselves, in their proper context and proper theology. What was it that they believed? They believed what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all other things will be added unto you. So what do we hunger for? The kingdom of God. And if there's a kingdom, there's a king. And that king's name is Jesus Christ. Do you know him? That king is the one that is the king of the people. And we are the royal subjects. That's why I surrender all. Because I surrender to a king who knows my every being and knows my every thought and knows my every move, and he still loves me. The question at the end of the documentary is, how do we make secondary things primary things? How do we make all those topics of eschatology, of missiology, of, of seeker-sensitive, of moral majority, how did they ever take the place of the rightful place, of the supreme place, of the one place that belongs to King Jesus, how did they ever absorb his truth in our life? Because they were hungry for the wrong things, my friends. They were hungry for the secondary things. Back to Scott McKnight's article. How do we feast upon someone we cannot see, taste, or touch? You ever thought about that? I'm telling you to be hungry for God, but you're saying, I can't see him. I can't taste him. I can't touch him. We know the early witnesses touched him because the epistle of John speaks about 
them touching him and seeing him. He says, my spiritual hunger grumbles loudest when I feel furthest from God. Did you ever notice that? Though I cling to the mental assertion that God is everywhere, he promises to never leave me or forsake me. We encounter days and weeks and months and some years where we still wonder, are you God? Are you here? A church without a proper understanding of the absence of God has really not really walked with God. All of us have entered into that moment of knowing that sometimes God's presence we do not feel or sense, but yet He is there. He is the God that is everywhere. He is the God that is with us at our time. But it's because we are in that dark night of the soul that God's Spirit begins to speak to our hearts to seek Him more, to have our spiritual hunger satisfied. So we don't pull away from God. We don't pull away from the body of Christ. We don't say, I can't go there anymore, and I just can't, can't be real myself there anymore. But we actually go there because that's where God is. Hello? You know how many people withdraw from the fellowship of the saints instead of draw to the fellowship of the saints when they are going through hard nights in their lives? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. And it's the enemy that gets them going further from the body than closer to the body. It's the voice of God that ends that silence. The voice of God, God speaks because God has spoken, as one of our theological teachers said, and it's right here in the Word. He speaks through the Word. He speaks through some of the songs that have the Word of God in them. He speaks still. I believe that. And when we hear His voice, it's like spiritual nourishment to my soul. It's like that deer that pants for the water, that's refreshed by the waters of the Word of God, the washing of the Word in our lives. Titus speaks about that, does he not? His voice is a banquet for my soul. As the song of song, he leads me to his banquet table, and his banner over me is love. God leads me to that banquet table from, from moments of, of isolation or, or moments of, of not sensing his presence. He brings me back to his banquet table because I still seek him. Pastor Betty read that Psalm 27 earlier on. Lord, your face do I seek. You seek the face of God this morning. You seek the heart of God this morning. Once Jesus said, hey, you all, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Oh, boy. Can you take these words from Jesus? Oh, you're only here this morning because I took care of your life. You haven't been without want. Maybe you don't have the cattle, a thousand cattle on the hill, but I've given you more than enough. And you're only here because I filled your stomach. Then he says, do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval, and Jesus promised, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Is there a witness of that in the house? Never go hungry. Never grow thirsty. God is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider, and His grace is sufficient for us all, you all. 
Jesus promised, I am the bread of life. Earlier on in the chapter, and in chapter 4, but he says these words, John chapter 4. We're still in John's gospel. Everything's there. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, do not, you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? And Jesus says these powerful words. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What's the food of the church? If that's the food of Jesus, isn't that our food as well? Isn't our food to do the will of the Father who sent Jesus and to follow in Jesus' footsteps to do His will is what satisfies us? We are satisfied when we're doing the will of God. Back to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let thy will be done. Nourishment. Now, going back earlier in that same chapter, chapter 4, he's talking to that woman at the well, that outsider that the disciples are looking suspiciously at Jesus with her. How could he dare be with her? Doesn't he know who she is? Well, Jesus really doesn't give a rip what other people think she is. He cares that she's made in the image of God, and she's in need of some spiritual water. And this is the dialogue. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, for whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Can you imagine that picture? Welling up, this whole water just springing up, welling, overflowing. You are thirsty for God, like the woman who answered Jesus with these words, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Is anyone thirsty? Is anyone thirsty? They looked down at this woman, but this woman knew what it meant to be thirsty for the living God after she realized who was standing before her. So, hey, you all, are you hungry and thirsty for a genuine move of God again? Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Move the mountains. Knock the walls down. Come into our lives. Rearrange our schedule. Make us Oh, Lord, servants of your priorities and your will, so that we may see your hand at work. Does your heart hunger for more of than how things are right now? Hello, is anyone that hungry and thirsty? <laughs> anyone? Eugene Peterson said some wise words. Worship does not satisfy our hunger. Sorry to disappoint you. It just whets the appetite. Because it's the response after the response. Worship is just wetting our appetites for God. It doesn't satisfy us. We heard a preacher talk yesterday, and he was talking about that. He went to this church, and, and then him and his wife were going to join the church, and they were asking the people that were going to join the church with them on this occasion why they decided to come to that church. And the first one answered, well, I sing tenor, and they have a good choir, so I came to this church because I want to sing in the choir. And then they moved on to the next one, and they asked him a similar question. You know, why why did you come to this church? He said, well, you got got a good youth program, and we got some youth in our family, so we came to this church for the youth program. 
And then they asked another person who was standing there that was willing to join the church and about to join the church, why did he join the church? And he was, in those days, he stood out a lot because he had long hair and he had studs in his ear. And he said, I came to this church because this is the church I got saved in. Out of the three, only one came because salvation was important to him. The other one came for the fads and for what they could provide as a menu to the outside world. This one came because he was a drug addict. And he went to their outreach center, and he got liberated from his addictions because of the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He said, I came to this church because once I was in bondage and in chains, and now I'm free, and I want to help other people get set free. That's a good reason to join the church, is it not? Remember that scene in the gospel when Jesus told his disciples that from now on you'd be all fishing for men and women? Jesus was weapon Peter's and his crew's appetite for the kingdom of God. The statement forced Jesus, uh, forced, the statement from Jesus forced Peter and the rest of the fishermen to be honest about what they truly desired in hunger and life. In a book that I just finished reading called Longing for Revival, in their chapter of uh, about moving from holy discontentment to the crucified hope that we have in Jesus, has these words about Peter and the others. Did they want the most lucrative fishing career in Galilee, in Northport, in Tignish? Or did they want a chance to catch human lives with the love of God? Where's the priority? Not to say that you stop fishing. We know they didn't. But what's the priority? What do we want? Do we want the things of this world or do we want to be engaged in the evangelism and the mission of God because we have a king and his name is Jesus and we are his royal subjects and he calls us to share with him the ministry of finding others, fishing for others, farming for others, whatever words you want to put in the equations so that they can be part of the kingdom as well. Hello? What truly wets you all's appetite. David was a man after God's heart. I like David. He knew that only God can satisfy his hunger. These words have been put to many countless songs that we sing in our churches. You, God, are my God, and earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary, and I beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. Isn't that great? And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Boy, does this guy thirst for God or not? But it's, only, it's not meant to be written and said, well, that was David. No, it's meant to draw us in as well to that thirst that he experienced for the living God. When you're at this place, you don't pray casual anymore. You don't pray routine anymore. You cry out to God. It's that prayer of anguish that we talked about a few Sunday evenings ago. You're no longer worried about your sophistication. You don't always say, oh, Lord, would you please help? Oh, God, would you come down? Would you move in our midst? And I don't mean you have to scream all the time, so get me, hear me right there. 
But there are times that you can't hold those words within yourself, within your spirit. Just like a little baby, we all have had children, most of us, and the other ones who have it will soon find out. When they start to cry at 2 o'clock in the morning, they don't care if you're getting deep sleep or not. They're just going to scream, ah, feed me, feed me, feed me. Have you ever done that for God? Have you ever done that for God? That you were just spiritually starving. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. You don't know the next step to do in life. And you can do nothing but just cry like a child starving for the mother's breast. You been there? There's even a psalm about that somewhere in David's writings. And then you know the kids don't care what time it is. They're going to let you know when they're hungry. And God doesn't care what time it is. When you're hungry, cry out to the living God. Cry out to Him. Cultivate a spirit of hunger for God. It's scriptural. And the women women of scripture, scripture are prime examples of those who had deep desire for God. For this is the air I breathe. I'm desperate for you. Anybody desperate in the house this morning? Desperate for a genuine move of God, for our kids, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our neighbors, for the people that we have coffee with that don't know the Lord, for, for anyone that, that, that lives and moves in this world that we just desperate that they may know what we know and not keep it to ourselves. See, we serve God not to bring success, hello, but to stay close to Him, for He's clarity in a world of confusion. He's life in a world too obsessed with death. He's the enduring presence in the midst of change. The depth and breadth of our lives depends on our ability to pray together, to confess together, and as we talked about a few Sunday nights ago, to celebrate together. It's good to celebrate together. Individualism, not individual, but individualism will kill us, my friends. When we all split away and do our own things, it'll kill us. We are held together by the ritual of being hungry for God. All of us confessing our need for Him. You know, there's a little book that I just finished reading with a rabbi speaking to two millennials. They're all fictional characters. One was named Michael, one was named Ruth, and they're all asking the questions, is religion relevant? And I know some of you guys are going to say, I'm into relationship and not into religion. Hocus pocus. It's the same thing. We got charity numbers. We give money to the government. We're an organized place. Even the independent interdenominational churches are organized or else they wouldn't get receipts for what the people give to the local church. So, and even if they don't, they're still organized because there's a system there. So religion is how it how they're defined, and if they don't like the word, too bad for them, but it's religion nevertheless. Whether you're Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or Evangelical, it's beyond that. This just so happens to be Jewish. And there's questions and dialogues back and forth, and here's one that I would like to bring to you as we close that I think answer the questions, why humans still hunger for God? You know, the world tries to tell you that you don't need God. You know, because they can provide all the answers, but that's not the truth at all. I put a clip on our website about science and faith and religion is compatible. It's not incompatible. Each one serves their own purpose in life. So here's the letter, and it's addressed to Michael. So like I was reading it for myself, but maybe a younger me at this time. 
Okay, so give me some ears. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. He says, Dear Michael, consider this. To explain the universe, we no longer need Genesis. We have science. It's not what Genesis is about, but anyway. To control the universe, we no longer need prayer. We have technology. To prevent the abuse of power, we don't need prophets. We have elections and politicians, God help us. To achieve prosperity, we don't need blessings. We have economists. <laughs> if we fall ill, we don't go to a rabbi, a priest, or a pastor. I'm adding some words there. We go to a doctor. If we feel guilty, we no longer need confession. We go to a psychotherapist. If we are depressed, we no longer need the book of Psalms to get us out of the dark depression. We can take, name whatever pharmaceutical drug has been prescribed for that. And if we seek salvation, we can go to the shopping center where we can buy happiness at a highly competitive price. Right, Betty? So who needs religion? Who needs religion? And yet, religion survives. Everywhere except Europe, it's getting stronger. Today in the United States, still the world's leading economy, more people regularly attend the place of worship than they do in the theocratic state of Iran. That means in Iran, you're mandatory to go visit a mosque. In China, the world's fastest growing economy, there are more people in church on Sunday than there are members of the Communist Party. And in this place, a half a century ago, there was a chairman named Mao Zedong who declared religion free. <laughs> Isn't that something? Fifty years ago, he declared it religion free, and today there's more people worshiping that are members of the Communist Party. If religion has been declared dying, even dead, why is it so vigorously alive? Hello, folks. Don't, read every, don't believe everything you read. Because none of the institutions of the modern world, and this is where he is a man of wisdom, none of the institutions of the modern world, science, technology, liberal democracy, and the market economy can answer three great questions that every reflective human being must ask, and they are the following. Who am I? Why am I here? And how should I live? None of those categories can answer those questions. Only God can answer those questions. And only God can fill those desires and those cravings and those spiritual longings within our hearts related to those questions and give us life abundantly. Are you hungry for God? I invite you to stand. And if you so desire to seek the face of God, 